Isaiah 51. As we continue on in our study of the prophecy of Isaiah, we come to a couple of chapters. We're going to just deal with chapter 51 tonight, but uh, we come upon a couple of chapters that continue to focus upon the restoration of Zion by God Himself. Zion, Jerusalem, Israel. And in verse 1, let's read down through verse 3 and then we'll pray and get right into our study. But in verse 1 it says, Listen to me, you who follow after righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn. And to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you. For I alone, for I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. The Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in it, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Shall we pray? Father, help us to understand these words and those that follow tonight. Teach us if need be, Lord, to listen to you, to listen to you as you speak to us through your word. We ask for the anointing and blessing of your Holy Spirit. We desire, Lord, so much to know what you have to say to us. We desire, Lord God, to grow in wisdom and an understanding of your word. Especially, Lord, as we see now these last days unfolding before us and things in this world taking place that 20, 30, 40 years ago we would never have considered or thought but we know Lord God that your hand is upon all of the events that are taking place in this world But most importantly, your hand is upon your people, your church, and your people, Israel. May you continue, Lord God, to bring us, Lord, to that greater understanding of how much you love us and how much you love your people. That you desire for us, Lord God, to be with you ruling and reigning forever and ever we ask Father God all these things in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior Amen and Amen now some of you might remember that years ago at or near railroad crossings 
There was an additional warning sign in most places. But there was an additional warning sign that read, very simply, Stop. Look. Listen. I was kind of intrigued by that. So I kind of looked it up in the internet, you know, signs. So on eBay, they're selling them, if you want, the old railroad signs that say, Stop, look, and listen. They're still around, but we don't see them often any longer around you know, the streets or the roads in most places. But these were instructions that were taught and given to us even in school so that we as youngsters in the backseat of our parents' vehicles would do our civic duty and remind Dad what he needed to do as he approached that crossing. Dad, stop, look, listen. Those were the days, weren't they? They would teach us those things in schools. Weren't we much more careful then than we are now? Do we stop? Do we look and listen to the days, the times, the events that surround us? We need to take time to look. Stop, to look, to listen, especially to the Lord. Are we stopping to look at Him, to listen to Him, to listen for His voice, to listen for His guidance, His direction? You know, Israel certainly needed to do that. They needed to stop, to look, and to listen to what the Lord had to say to them. How often did God speak to them and say, Be still and know that I am God. Psalm 46.10 Be still. What is that? Stop. Look to me. And now he says here, listen. Listen to me. Israel needed to stop, look, and listen to what the Lord had to say to them. But, but for countless years, they, they had a lot of trouble paying attention to what He had to say to them, didn't they? A lot of trouble. He would speak, they wouldn't listen. He would speak, they would rebel. They would do their own thing. Like a lot of people are doing today. And sadly, even in the church, God speaks to them in His Word, and, and we don't want to do it. But we need to stop and look and listen to what he has to say. Is there any wonder that three times in this chapter God gives them the exhortation, listen to me? In chapters 51 and 52, the the prophecies concerning Zion's restoration continue. and, And note especially, if you will, that the faithful remnant in Israel is being addressed. The faithful remnant in Israel is being addressed with both beauty there's a beauty to the words that God is using toward them but there's also a forcefulness and you need to kind of discern that as you read this and, 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 and take it into, into consideration as you read it verse 1 it says listen to me you who follow after righteousness notice he's speaking to a faithful remnant you who follow after righteousness you who seek the Lord you see not all of them sought the Lord but there, was, there were some who did. And he's speaking to those who were the faithful remnant. 
Listen to me, you who follow after righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look, he says, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. Interesting words. Those who are being addressed are ones following after righteousness. They're seeking the Lord. And when you link this verse, verse 1, with verse 7, and the law of the Lord, as it it mentions it there, it points to a lifestyle in keeping with that law. It points to a lifestyle that is keeping with that law. Notice verse 7, just to jump down there very quickly. It says, listen to me, you who know righteousness, notice, you people in whose heart is my law. You people in whose heart is my law. So you see then that it's pointing to a lifestyle in keeping with that law. And who better than to think back on their background than those who truly believe, those who truly follow, those who truly seek the Lord. They're to think back on their background, think back on their history. This is where the Lord is pointing them. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. If they were hungering and searching and, 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 and thirsting after God, God was going to help them. God was going to speak to them. God was going to bless them. And so the Lord counsels His people to look at His work in the history of His people Israel. Look at the work. Look back, all the way back even to Abraham. In essence, it was going back to the beginning for them. Look to the rock from which you were hewn. That's Abraham. And to the hole of the pit, in in essence, the quarry from which you were dug. So they're defining this statement now, or the Lord is defining this statement for us in verse 2. Notice verse 2. Look to Abraham your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For I called him alone, and blessed him, and increased him. So the Lord told them to look back and remember Abraham and Sarah, the ancestral beginnings of the Jewish nation, the ancestral beginnings of the people of Israel. Abraham being the rock, Sarah the quarry from which they were dug. And you have to remember these were old people. They were well into their years when God blessed them and increased them. But the real point of comparison is in, in the second fa- uh, phrase of verse 2. The second phrase of verse 2 says, For I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. It needs to be mentioned at this point that, uh, that God's people were in a place of discouragement. It needs to be mentioned that, that uh, God's people at this point in time, as Isaiah is giving this prophecy... God's people were in a place of discouragement. Why? Because they were in exile in Babylon. This is to whom the letter is written. This is who is going to receive this letter. Going to receive this encouragement. They are discouraged. They had to have felt defeated and in great despair. Being in captivity. Being in exile. Being once again slaves to another people. And so the Lord encourages them to look His work in and through His people in times past. To look at His work in in and through His people, in and through Abraham from, from from the very beginning. Israel began, you see, themselves. Israel began from a small beginning. Think about it. He says, for I called Him alone. 
You go back to the book of Genesis, when Abraham is called, his name was Abram at the time, and, and, and God calls him out of Ur of the Chaldees from his home, home and family, calls him out to go to a place where he doesn't even know where he's going. That's a small beginning, isn't it? One person. Abraham was called alone, one man, from a simple family. And yet God blessed him, God increased him, and from those two elderly people, Abraham and Sarah, of course, came a nation as numerous as the dust of the earth and the stars of the heaven. This was the promise that God gave. Notice in Genesis 13, verse 16. As God speaks to Abraham, He says, And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. So that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. By the way, has anybody ever numbered sand? Uh, granules of sand? I, I don't even think you ought to start. You wouldn't get anywhere. can't count them. You can't count God's people. Genesis 15 verse 5 says, Then he brought him outside and he said, Look now toward heaven. He tells Abraham, Look, look at the heavens. At that time there was no pollution. There were no city lights. You know, a lot of city lights kind of keeps us from seeing the beauty of the sky. You have to get away from the city, away from the lights before you begin to see how beautiful the sky is how beautiful the stars are placed the moon as God moves it around and he says to Abraham look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them and he said to him so shall your descendants be from a small beginning he called him alone how great this nation became now, the remnant leaving Babylon would be small and weak. By the way, think about your own beginnings with the Lord. When it comes right down to it, you were alone. There was no one else getting saved with you. I mean, there may have been a lot of people. Maybe you got saved in a, in a church or a, a crusade or something, and a lot of people. But, you know, when it came right down to it, God was looking at one heart, yours. God was dealing with one person, you. God was dealing with each and every individual that is in this room today. He's already dealt with us if, if indeed you've come to know Christ. He's dealt with you individually. And He loves you individually. And He knows you individually. And He calls you by name individually. You were nothing. Think about this. When you came to Christ, you were nothing. But when Jesus saved you, you became valuable. And when you started with it, what a joy to know that you weren't alone. Jesus said, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. I'll never leave you alone. I'll give you a place to be, the church. Give you a place where you can grow in my word. We start small, don't we? We don't start with, with all the knowledge that we want to have. We, we start knowing nothing, but then we grow in that knowledge day by day because we love the Lord who loved us. And so think about, think about those who were in Babylon, the remnant leaving Babylon. They were going to be small, they were going to be weak, but God Almighty was able to increase them and to build them into a mighty nation and turn their devastated and desolate land into a paradise, as we shall see. 
And so the Lord proclaims to them in verse 3. He says, For the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in it, thanksgiving in the voice of melody. You know, we can, we can all, those of us who have been to Israel can all say, what well, it was a beautiful land, but it's, it's nothing compared to what God is going to make it even later when, he, when Jesus comes again. It's really going to be beautiful then. But there's a certain beauty to it now. Because God has brought His people back into that land. God has fulfilled His promises and is fulfilling it every day as more and more Jews come back into the land of Israel. But the Lord is saying to His people, He says, Be comforted because the best is yet to come. Be comforted because the best is yet to come. You know, we know that as believers in Jesus Christ. We know that because we've had, we have the Old Testament and the New Testament. And if we read it through, we realize what glory God is going to bring upon this earth when He comes. When Jesus comes. And so He says, be comforted. You're going to go through times of trial. You're going to go through times of struggle. Be comforted because the best is yet to come. And so to a discouraged bunch of people that, pro- that, that promise might have seemed... Too good to be true. But by faithfully remembering the work that God did in Abraham and Sarah, their faith would be strengthened to trust in His promises for their day. Doesn't it encourage us when we go back and we read the Scriptures, we read something that, you know, we're going through ourselves, we're going through a a struggle and trial, but yet we read something that God did years and years ago, if not thousands of years ago, and then we see, if God did it then, He does it now? Is that not encouraging? Isn't it not, is it not encouraging that God is greater, in, in a sense, even now, today, than He's ever been? Even though He's never been less than great. But His greatness increases in our lives and in our hearts and our minds because we see Him do greater and more awesome things. That is why it is important for us to get into God's Word, to read God's Word, to love God's Word, to just, uh, just relish the time and the moments to be in God's Word because there's just so much there that encourages us of His presence, of His goodness, of His mercy, of His grace. We ought not to be a discouraged people. We get discouraged because we take our eyes, our eyes off the Lord. We put them on other things. Or sometimes we put them on ourselves. That's what mirrors are for. We are talking about that the other day. You know, people going into the gym and just, you know, they got mirrors everywhere in gyms. Don't they? And the last thing I need to do is stand in a, in a room with a whole bunch of mirrors. Man, that's the last thing I need. Because I'll be going, oh my God. You know, I don't need that. That's discouraging, folks. Some people got the muscles. You know, then they make the, you know, some people look to themselves, or they look to others, or they look to things in the world. But they just get away from God. And you know, we need to keep our focus on the Lord. We need that kind of encouragement today. The Lord can do great things through us as well. Do you believe that? That the Lord can do great things through you? Do you believe it? You need to believe that. That God can do great things through you. Because it isn't you, it's God. We have this treasure, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, in earthen vessels. We're the earthen vessel. He's God. That's a great encouragement. Oh, by the way, it's 2 Corinthians chapter (laughs) 4. 
Think of what is, about what it says here. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day for our light affliction, which is but for a moment. Can you imagine Paul calling all the struggles and trials and troubles and tribulations that he had light affliction? Yes, he could call it that because he knew there was something coming that was better. Why? Because the best was yet to come. And he said... For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, you see, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. That's where God works. He works in the unseen. He works in the heart. It works in the spirit of man. And so the near fulfillment then would be on their return from their captivity in Babylon. That would have been the near fulfillment. You're returning, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to strengthen you once again. The far and ultimate fulfillment is in the regathered and saved Israel beginning with a thousand year reign of Christ. The regathered and saved Israel of the millennium. That is the far fulfillment. And as they were first to look back to their history, that's verses 1 to 3, looking back to their history, now they are told to look ahead to justice and vindication. Look ahead to salvation and righteousness. Let's go to verses 4 through 6 now. In verses 4 through 6 it says, listen to me. There it is again. Listen to me. How many times does God have to say something? Sometimes He has to say it a lot, doesn't He? In this passage, he says it three times. One time is enough when God says anything. Twice, it's, it's, it's emphasized a little bit more. We need to take much greater note. Three times, it is extremely important. Listen to me, he says. My people. Now notice that he calls them my people. And give ear to me, O my nation. For law will proceed from me. And I will make my justice rest as a light of the peoples. My righteousness is near. My salvation has gone forth. And my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands will wait upon me in my arm. And on my arm they will trust. Remember the coastlands being that, that uh, really the farthest, farthest reaches of the, of the earth. So that would mean coming out to us. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. And look on the earth beneath, for the heavens will vanish away like smoke. See, what he's saying to them is, look at the things that you can see. Look at the things that you can certainly experience with your senses. You can see the heavens. They'll vanish away like smoke. The earth will grow old like a garment, and those who dwell in it will die in like manner. So not only the heavens of the earth, as he mentioned, but even those who are living on the earth, they're going to die in like manner. But he says, my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not be abolished. In this passage, there is an emphasis on the word my. Notice it. My people, my nation, my justice, my righteousness, my salvation, my arms. My arm, my salvation, my righteousness. All of those mentions of my, my, my. This is nothing short. Listen carefully. This is nothing short of a merciful God. 
This is all of God. This is all of God's grace. This is all of God's mercy. Doing for His people what they could never deserve. And doing what they could never do for themselves. That is God. My people. My nation. My justice. My righteousness. My salvation. My arms. My arm. When Messiah returns, you see, and establishes His kingdom on this earth, His justice and His righteousness will be displayed in a very special way, not only to His people, but also to all the nations. Again, the coastlands are mentioned. The peoples are mentioned in verse 5. But I want you to remember something in Isaiah 49, verse 6. You might want to turn back there a couple of pages. Isaiah 49, verse 6. Do you remember this where it says, Indeed, He says, It is too small a thing that you should be My servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be My salvation to the ends of the earth. The Father speaking to the Son, the Son who is the Messiah. It is too small that you should just be My servant to a tribe or to the tribes of Jacob to reserve uh, to preserve. Israel, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles. What is that? The whole world. It is the whole world that Jesus came to. For God so loved the whole world that He gave His only begotten Son. It doesn't say, therefore God so loved Israel, even though Israel is a part of that. In essence, it is a, is a separate part in a sense because He has separated His people from the world. But nonetheless, He says, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That is the light to the Gentiles. We're getting close to Christmas. We, you know, we talk about lights, you know, and we talk about, you know, the light of the world. And, 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 you know, the lights are all significant. It's also significant that around the same time, the Jews celebrate Hanukkah, the festival of lights. And we're not going to talk about Hanukkah and why they celebrate it, but, but it is important to note that they celebrate light. God knows what He's doing. When he's putting all of these things together to get us to focus on one thing. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. A light that will shine on all who live. In the valley of the shadow of night. It's a paraphrase, but that's pretty much what it says in Isaiah chapter 9. A light that will shine. Who's that light? It wasn't a star. It was the star, Jesus Christ. He was the one who came to shine. And his life certainly did. And so verse 5, getting back to our text, similarly speaks of the salvation that will soon come to the nations. Righteousness and salvation in this passage, by the way, are synonymous. Right? Righteousness and salvation are really the same thing when you read it. And then he mentions the arm of the Lord or the arms of the Lord. Both are stated. But the arm of the Lord is mentioned because it is to be trusted. It is to be trusted upon because the arm of God is His salvation. Now who is the arm of God? Think about this question. Who's the arm of God? Well, I'll just tell you. It's Jesus. Who is the arm of God? It's Jesus. Simply. I want you to turn to Isaiah 53, just a couple of chapters over. One of the great chapters of, of the book of Isaiah. We're almost there. Who has believed our report? And notice this. 
And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? To whom has the arm of the Lord be, uh, to whom has it been revealed? Now it's interesting when you look at that verse, it says, and to whom has the bared arm? It's a bare arm. It's an interesting connotation. To whom has the bared arm of the Lord been revealed? Who or what is that bared arm of the Lord but the redemption that is in Christ to be revealed to a lost world? That's Jew and Gentile together. Now, the reason I say that is because if you read on in verses 2 through 4 of Isaiah 53, it says, For he, to whom shall the arm of the Lord be revealed? For he. Do you see the connection here? It's making that connection of, of, of the arm, the bared arm of the Lord is a he. <laughs> For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. And as a root out of dry ground, he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Who is this? It's Jesus. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him, the bared arm of the Lord. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, spitting my God in afflicted. We can read on and on. We're, we're going to study it anyway later. But, but, but you see the, con- the connection, the arm of the Lord. The arm of God is, is His salvation. And who is His salvation? But Jesus Christ, Jesus, Yeshua, which means God is salvation. That's Jesus The arm of the Lord is Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. As for verse 6 of our text, heaven and earth will pass away. Judgment will also be evident in mankind as well. But God's righteousness and salvation will last forever. Once again, there's this necessity for us to understand that the things that we see will not last. What lasts is God's righteousness, God's salvation, and God's Word. God's Word. They will remain and are a lot more permanent than what we see on this earth or even in the heavens. And what's best to know about this is that we do not have to fear that God will ever change His character or His mind about us. That's the best thing to know right now. What's best to know about all of this is that we don't have to fear that God will ever change His character, His righteousness, or His mind, His salvation about us. He is righteous and He saves to the uttermost. God saves to the uttermost. I love that about what God does to us and for us. He saves us to the very uttermost. Now, I I would hope that you understand what it means to go to the uttermost. Jesus said to his disciples, go to the uttermost parts of the earth. As far as you can go is is what uttermost means. (laughs) That's how God saves us. He doesn't save us just a little and lets us do the rest. 
Aren't you thankful about God's salvation? That, that He doesn't say, okay, I'm going to do a little bit, but then now you have to save yourself the rest of the way. No. He says, I want to save you to the uttermost. I want to save you completely and totally. That's what people need to understand about the salvation of the Lord. That He saves. When He saves you, He saves you and keeps you and keeps you because He loves us that much. That's how God saves to the uttermost. Think about this. Turn to Hebrews chapter 7. And notice all of the references to what Jesus does for us. In Hebrews chapter 7 verse 24 and following. It says, but he, because he continues forever. Who continues forever? This is speaking of Jesus, by the way. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. So he's not going to change. He's not going to change his character and he's not going to change his mind about what he does for us as individuals who have come to know him. It says that he has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save how? To the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now here again, if God saves to the uttermost and and then he intercedes for us, completely and totally and he lives to make intercession for us and you think that God the Father is not going to hear the prayers of his own son for us what a tremendous statement this is about Jesus it says in verse 26 for such a high priest was fitting for us do you know why that is because any other high priest couldn't have done what, he, what Jesus could do No other high priest, no other person, no other person in flesh could ever do what Jesus Christ came to do. This is the high priest that was fitting for us. It's fitting for us because he's the only one that could save to the uttermost. Because he offered himself. He offered his blood, his body on the cross. For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners and has become higher than the heavens. Who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the, for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have, who have weakness. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. That is why He can save to the uttermost. That's why we need to have that kind of an understanding about the salvation and righteousness of the Lord. That's saving to the uttermost. He's going to save us. He's going to keep us. He's going to strengthen us. He's going to help us. But you know what? We need to show that that's happened in us by the expression of our love toward Him, by our following Him, by our desiring Him, desiring Him more than we desire anything else in this world. The evidence of His work in us. The changed life. The changed lives that we are in Christ. And as His people were to look back, and then they were to look ahead, those were the first two listens, (laughs) they were now to look within. They were now to look within where they would either find faith or fear. Notice verse 7. Listen to me. You who know righteousness. You people in whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of men, nor be afraid of their insults. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. 
But my righteousness will be forever and my salvation from generation to generation. Again, the emphasis of righteousness and salvation being forever. Now, understand. Listen to the question. Is there any reason that the nation God raised up and stands beside should fear men? Is there any reason that Israel, the Judah, the Jerusalem, the Zion, is there any reason that the nation God raised up and stands beside should fear men? Is there any reason for them to fear men? No, there shouldn't be. There, there, there shouldn't be any reason for them to fear men. Just like we shouldn't have any fear as well. There's, there's no reason for us to fear men. Why? Because Jesus said, I'll be with you. I'll be with you always. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll be with you through every trial, through every struggle, through every tribulation, through every persecution, through every temptation. I'll be with you. I'm going to be with you. You don't have to fear men. You don't have to fear them who could maybe even take your life. You don't have to fear them. Because I'm with you. But if the Lord is truly for them, who should be against them? And again, there is need for remembrance here. There's need to go back and to think and to look at what has been said and what they have themselves said. Isaiah chapter 8 verse 13. It says, The Lord of hosts, Him you shall hallow. Let Him be your fear and let Him be your dread. This, this is something they already heard. This is something that they were already instructed to do. Let the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor. Him you shall separate. Set apart in your life. And let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. Fear God, in other words. Not man. That was given to them already. Chapter 8. Long time ago. I don't even remember when we studied chapter 8. I don't know. It was a while back. Isaiah 12. Look at what it says in verses 1 and 2. And in that day you will say, O Lord, I will praise you. Though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yah the Lord is my strength and song. He also has become my salvation. He says, you're going to say this. What's happened? Have they forgotten? Do we forget that God is our strength? That God is our salvation? That God is our our security, that God is our sustenance, that God is our song. Have we forgotten those things? Having God's law in one's heart, and that's why it's mentioned in verse 7, you who know righteousness, you people whose heart is, is my law, in whose heart is my law. Having God's law in one's heart is a beautiful picture. Think about it. Having God's law in your heart. A picture that points to what? It points to belonging to God. If God's law is in my heart, if it is in your heart, you belong to God. It's His law. You're His people. You belong to God. That's a beautiful picture. You have the law in your heart. And hence, being saved by Him is part of that picture. You have His law in your heart. Therefore you are set apart and saved. Jeremiah chapter 31 makes this clear to us. Verse 31 it says, Behold the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. By the way, this is quoted for us again in the book of Hebrews. We won't go there because of time. But then in verse 34 it says, No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother say, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. And notice this last statement, again quoted in the book of Hebrews, For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. The law in their hearts, they belong to God, they are saved by God. Why? Because he's written his, heart, his law in their hearts. And he's put their, his law in their minds. That's what he's done with us. We have his word. The law, the, the royal law of love. We have his word in our minds and in our hearts. What a beautiful picture. We have it. We belong to him. He has saved us. And while the moth and the worm are, de are to destroy the enemy, as we read in verse 8, the salvation of the Lord will endure for His people. It is interesting that the moth and the worm were already at work in the Babylonian Empire, though their leaders never knew it until it was too late. They thought, you know, with Nebuchadnezzar, they thought, oh, this is, this is the kingdom of kingdoms. And yet, that kingdom was turned over to another, Cyrus. And so, that also happens easily. It's not just kingdoms, you know, that forget who really is God. Sometimes people do, and that happens easily when people fall asleep while thinking they are quite secure in themselves and in their supposed strength. But we see the people now arouse, uh, we see the people now issue an arousing prayer to the Lord in the next section as though he were asleep, honestly. <laughs> they think they're approaching him as if God is asleep that he might awaken to act on their behalf immediately. So look at verse 9. Awake, awake. I like to say that those are words given from God to them, but uh, in fact it is from them to God. Awake, awake, put on strength the arm of the Lord. <laughs> awake as in the ancient days, in the generations of old. Are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart and, and wounded the serpent? By the way, Rahab... Is, is a word uh, not talking about the, the woman Rahab it's just the, the, the word itself means pride but I'll explain it in a second Ahab and, and then wounded the, wounded the serpent are you not the one who dried up the seas the waters of the great deep that made the depths of the sea a road for the redeemed to cross over we know where that's talking about it's talking about the children of Israel crossing over the, the Red Sea or through the Red Sea when the Lord parted that sea so the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness. Sorrow and sighing shall flee. 
away. That's their hope, you see. That God would awaken and do this for them so that they could come in to Zion with singing. But the remnant in captivity in Babylon prayed to the Lord to bear his arm and strength for them as he did when he defeated Egypt and Pharaoh. That's Rahab and the serpent. Rahab was actually a poetical name for Egypt. The serpent, more than likely a crocodile actually, represented Pharaoh. We know this because of the coinage of the time of uh, one, of the, one of the kings of, of that time. Not, not the time of, of uh, Isaiah. Actually, later on, the, the Romans, when the Romans came in. And they had coinage from Egypt. And, and the coinage had a, a crocodile, but it represented the Pharaoh. Now, interestingly enough, listen to this in Isaiah 30, verse 7. It says, For the Egyptians shall help in vain and to no purpose. Therefore I have called her Rahab Hem Shabet. In other words, Rahab sits idle. So it's speaking of the Egyptians called Rahab or Rahab, which literally means pride, by the way. It sits idle. In Ezekiel 29, verse 3, notice here it says, Speak and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Pharaoh, king of Egypt, O great monster who lies in the midst of the rivers. Well, that sounds like a crocodile to me. <laughs> Who said, or who has said, my river is my own, I have made it for myself. That's the pride of the Pharaoh. So now, when we come back to what is being said here in verse 9, the people are, are, are saying to the Lord, Awaken, God, as you did before when you cut Rahab apart. You cut Egypt in half. When you do that? Well, when they were chasing the Israelites through the wilderness and, and they crossed through the Red Sea and then the sea fell upon the Egyptians and wounded the serpent. Of course, once your army is defeated, well, you don't have much left. God did that, you see. And of course, God was the one who conquered the great deep, drying up the Red Sea by which a road was made through the water for the newly redeemed Israel. Likewise, the remnant saw their return to Jerusalem. That remnant in Babylon saw their return to Jerusalem as a new exodus. This is the new exodus with the Lord God completely in charge now and the enemy soundly defeated. This is what they're trying to awaken the Lord to. They think think he's asleep because he's put them in exile. So how would you think the Lord would respond? Well, the Lord replies with words of comfort and hope. Interesting. Verse 12 says, I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die and of of the son of man who will be made like grass? With reference here, more than likely, to Nebuchadnezzar and his descendants who would later be defeated by the Persian Empire who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die I remember I said that God was going to come to them with with beautiful words and, and we've seen some of them already but also forceful ones and these are some of the forceful ones Who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die and of a son of man who will be made like grass? And you forget the Lord your maker, notice, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. You have feared continually every day because of the fury of the the oppressor when he has prepared to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? 
The captive exile hastens that he may be loosed, that he should not die in the pit, and that his bread should, should not fail. But I am the Lord your God, who divided the sea, whose waves roared. The Lord of hosts is his name, and I have put my words in your mouth. I have covered you with the shadow of my hand, that I may plant the heavens, lay the foundations of the earth, and say to Zion, you are my people. In other words, I'm not asleep. But I love you. I care about you. And I've cared about you even in your distress, even in your despair, even in your, dis- in your depressions. I, I'm, I'm there. I've kept my hand on you. I've covered you with the shadow of my hand. They could have easily been wiped out by Babylon. Completely. Think about it. Think about how easily they could have been no more. And the enemy down through the ages has really tried to destroy all of the Jewish people. It's been known to happen. Anti-Semitism continues to grow even in our day and time again. Who knows what that's going to lead to except for what we know in the scriptures. So consider then the promises of God. Consider the promise given by God here when He says, I even I am He who comforts you. I mean, think about it. With a promise like that and from a God that has proved Himself mighty to His people time and time again, His people, Israel, have no reason whatsoever to fear man. No reason whatsoever. And I think of God saying to them these words, how do, you, how do you get it in your heads to fear mortal men? <laughs> how do you get it in your heads to fear mortal men when I've been with you always? And so God reminds them again of man's frailties and the power of their creator God. Look at the, Go back to Isaiah 40 for just a moment, verses 6 through 8. It says, the voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? Notice, all flesh is what? Grass. All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The focus is on the frailty of flesh. Why do you fear that? Isaiah 51, verse 13. It says, And you forget the Lord your Maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. You have feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor when he is prepared to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? In other words, where are they now? God used Cyrus, right? Not only to set them free from their captivity, but to bring them back to their land and to restore the temple. And the city of Jerusalem. Why should any of us be afraid of grass? The God of the universe is on our side. Why should we be afraid of grass? All flesh is grass. Why should we be afraid of grass? 
Romans 8.31, Paul said, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? A lot of people like that, but let me just say, make sure that that you're on God's side. Let me make that clear. You need to be on God's side. But if you're on God's side, and He's on your side, what do you have to fear? So now in verse 17, I've got to do this very quickly because of time. In verse 17 and following, there is another wake-up call, but this time, it's for Jerusalem. And it's from God. Verse 17, Awake, awake! Stand up, O Jerusalem! You who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of His fury, you have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling, and drained it out. Did they not suffer a tremendous loss when they were defeated by the Babylonians? That was judgment by God upon His own people. And this is the description of it. Verse 18, There is no one to guide her among all the sons she has brought forth, nor is there any who takes her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. Jerusalem being the mother, uh, the picture of the mother, and the sons being the people of Israel. These two things have come to you. Who will be sorry for you? These two things, desolation and destruction is one thing, famine and sword is the other. Desolation and destruction are their property, famine and sword their people. By whom will I comfort you? Your sons have fainted, they lie at the head of of all the streets like an antelope in a net. They are full of the fury of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Therefore, please hear this, you afflicted and drunk, but not with wine. Thus says your Lord, the Lord and your God, who pleads the cause of his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup of trembling. Folks, this is a tremendous picture. Later on in in, in the book of Zechariah chapter 12, we're told that Jerusalem is a cup of trembling. But one day God is going to take that cup out of their hand. This is a beautiful picture. You know, they're going to have to face their judgment again. but, But God's going to take the cup out of their hand. Notice. I have taken out of your hand the cup of trembling, the dregs of the cup of my fury. You shall no longer drink it. But I will put it into the hand of those who afflict you, who have said to you, Lie down that we may walk over you. And you have laid your body like the ground and as the street for those who walk over. The greatest sign of humiliation of that time. People walking on top of you. Putting your foot upon another person. That was a sign of humiliation. We saw it a few a couple of years ago when, when our troops went into Baghdad and took down that, that, that uh, statue of Saddam Hussein. And all the people ran and they started putting their foot all over it. That's what you saw. A sign of humiliation. The Lord, through the prophet Isaiah, is now speaking to the ruined city of Jerusalem. In this section, this last section, pictured here as a mother in a drunken state of unconsciousness with none of her sons to help her. Here is a common picture of judgment in the Old Testament, the cup of God's wrath and fury. This was a call to remembrance for Jerusalem that they have already drunk at the hand of the Lord when they experience God's judgment through the Babylonians. This is what happens when God's people fall asleep spiritually. And even in our day and time, living in the grace and mercy of the cross of Jesus Christ, we need to be vigilant. We need to be awake. Paul in Romans 13 verses 11 through 14 says, And do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. 
For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. It's time, that's for us today. It's time to awake out of sleep. Why? Because Jesus is coming again. That is too quiet. Man, Jesus is coming again. Folks, He could come tonight. He could come for any one of us tonight, but He could come for all of us tonight. Jesus Christ is coming. And we need to be awake. The children of Zion had gone into captivity. But now they were returning to give their mother new hope and a new beginning. Jerusalem. God will take the cup of judgment from His people and give it to their enemies. Even to the very end we're going to see that Jerusalem will be a cup of trembling, we're told in Zechariah 12. But He's going to take that cup. And He is going to take that cup from His people and give it to their enemies. And He will put His foot on their necks. Can you imagine Jesus when He comes and He places His feet upon the Mount of Olives? And He goes through that eastern gate that is sealed up right now. He's not going to be sealed up for long. And when He comes with His saints through that gate, He will walk on His enemies. As I said, it actually signified humiliation and a declaration of their defeat. But instead of Babylon walking on the Jews, the Jews would walk on them. Jeremiah would see what would happen to Israel, in particular to Judah and to to Jerusalem. And he would lament over the devastation of God's people and God's city. And he served as a type of the people even though he was ridiculed by his own people. Jeremiah, when you read of the prophet Jeremiah, realize his own people mocked him, mistreated him. But when you read Lamentations chapter 3, verses 14 through 26, you get this picture that involves the hope that God is wanting to give His people in this section of Isaiah 51. Jeremiah said, I have become the ridicule of all my people. Their taunting song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drink wormwood. He has also broken my teeth with gravel and covered me with ashes. You have moved my soul far from peace. I have forgotten prosperity. And I said, my strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. But then he says in verse 19, Remember my affliction and roaming, the wormwood and the gall. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. This I recall to mind. To my mind, therefore, I have hope. 
through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. Because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good to those who wait. The Lord is good. He spoke to the remnant at the beginning of chapter 51 of Isaiah. Listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to me. And awaken. I still care for you. I still love you. Your enemies will face the greater judgment. I want to close with something that J. Vernon McGee wrote about this section of Scripture. He said, The enemies of Israel will not escape the judgment of God. Every nation that has majored in anti-Semitism has fallen. Egypt, Persia, Rome, Spain, Belgium, and Germany. This chapter should alert the believers today that God will yet choose Israel and that the events in the Near East indicate that we are fast approaching the end times, although no specific prophecy is being fulfilled in this hour. Of course, that was written a few years ago. I think a lot of prophecies are being fulfilled in this hour. But the important point is what he says about Israel and that we need to be alert and awake because of what is taking place in a land across the sea. The birthplace of the prophets. The birthplace of the patriarchs. But most importantly, the birthplace of the light to the Gentiles and to the Jewish people their own Messiah Jesus Christ I don't know about you but I I sense a tremendous love that God has for his people through this chapter and as we go into the next chapter the same thoughts and ideas will, will come through but the important thing is God is faithful to keep his promises. We can have hope. We need to stand on the truth of God's promises. Not only for his people, Israel, but his people, the church. I have loved you, he says, with an everlasting love. That says it all. An everlasting love. That should stir our hearts. If it doesn't, something's wrong with our hearts. If we can't accept the love that God has for us. Let's pray.